welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 279, Dynastic Cults. Today's episode is on something that you're unlikely to have ever heard about. Not just the history of, but literally the concept. But it's actually a really interesting and important aspect of this period in history. And it's in line with the BHP's purpose, which is to bring you information that you're unlikely to hear anywhere else. And podcasts are unique in this way. We aren't constrained by the demands of commercials or news cycles or even huge audience numbers. The flexibility of this format means that we can bring you what no other platform can, and the BHP takes that opportunity very seriously. All we need to do is continue to exist, and history that has been locked in libraries and behind paywalls suddenly becomes available to just about anyone with an internet connection. And the BHP exists entirely thanks to our members. So to all of you who've signed up to support this project, thank you. We wouldn't be learning about what we are today without your support. And for those of you who'd like to join them in supporting the cast and also get access to the members feed, you can do so at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And that will help you keep this show going. And thank you very much to Gene, Andrew, and Rawanthi for signing up already. Want to know something strange? When Edward died... The Irish Annals said nothing about it. Not a mention about his death, nor the circumstances of it. And it's not like the Irish Annals were disinterested in what was happening in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. After all, they're the source for our story about Athelflaed's defense of Chester. And they were so interested in that, that they told us about the bees. And it's not like the Irish Annals didn't bother to record deaths of the Anglo-Saxon figures. For example, they recorded the death of Aidwulf of Bambra, and he was a man whose biggest accomplishment in the record seems to be that he was the father of Aeldred, who was the guy that allied with Scotland, fought against Ragnald, and lost. So they record that guy's death, but they ignore the king of the Anglo-Saxons? And as an added twist, they also recorded the death of Edward's sister, Athelflaed, and they even named her in the record as Athelflaed Queen of the Saxons. But again, nothing about the king of the Anglo-Saxons dying. That's odd. But before you run off and say, well, maybe the Irish knew the real truth and it was Athelflaed who was the real ruler, you should know that there are no coins minted in her name. But there were coins minted in Edward's. So that's concrete evidence of Edward's power and his stature within Britain. So when the Irish annals omit his death, it's not because he wasn't who he says he was. Furthermore, I don't even think it was a sign that the Irish were annoyed with Edward and that they deliberately wrote him out. Rather, I think what we're seeing here is the effect of perspective. The Irish scribes were recording events as best as they understood them. And like everyone, they only had so much information to go on. Think about it this way. Edward's main base of power was in the south. And the Irish mostly dealt with the Midlands and the north. So if they were dealing with Athelflaed because she was nearby and she appeared regal in their meetings and was able to make important decisions, well, the Irish would have logically assumed that they were dealing with the Queen of the Saxons. And if they also never got to meet Edward, they might not have even known how much power he held. Perspective. And I find it important to remember how much perspective can change how we perceive events and people when we look at history. Because our record is sparse. And many times, historians have to become detectives and have to do their best at figuring out what happened in between the blank spaces on the page. 
And while sometimes those blank spaces can be a reflection of politics, or for lack of a better term, propaganda, it can also sometimes just be a simple matter of perspective. Something else I like to keep in mind when covering events is culture. And culture is a hard thing to pin down, especially in eras as poorly documented as this one. I mean, these days, it's really easy to document cultural changes on a decade-by-decade basis, and even a year-by-year basis. For example, do you feel like the world is the same as it was in 2016? Probably not, right? The last couple years have been a bit of a roller coaster, and there have been some pretty big cultural shifts that have happened throughout all segments of society, and some have happened really rapidly. But because we have such a granular record, we can spot all those changes. But determining cultural shifts in the 9th and 10th centuries, well, that's a bit more difficult to discern because we simply lack the data points necessary for most situations. But there are some changes that we can see. And one of the big changes is regarding a practice that really doesn't have much of a modern corollary. It's not something where, if it gets mentioned in the show, you'd have an immediate sense of what it means because it's close to something that you're already familiar with. Like, for example, feasting. And the truth is, during this period, there was a massive cultural and institutional set of practices which were enormously important to the people at the time, but have since died out completely. And now it feels so alien that it's really hard to imagine or even describe. And what I'm talking about here are dynastic cults. These were huge institutions that mixed spirituality and aristocratic power, and they held some of the most important people of the time. They built their own buildings, engaged in bitter rivalries with other cults, and formed huge houses of royal power. We really don't do anything like them now, but back then, they were hugely important. And leading up to the rise of Athelstan, they were going through some pretty big changes. And these changes were warping and straining the political and religious landscape of the Anglo-Saxons. Now, a dynastic cult, to put it very simply is a group that's religiously devoted to a royal saint. And in the early to mid-Anglo-Saxon era, and specifically around the 9th and 10th centuries, there were seemingly an endless supply of them. But the thing to know about royal saints is that the church, the official holy bureaucracy that had its capital in Rome, typically weren't making them. The Pope only started getting heavily involved in canonization, that being the creation of saints, in the 10th century and the Vatican didn't take complete control of it until the 12th. So prior to that, making saints was kind of a free-for-all, especially in places that were backwaters, like Britain. And so from the 7th to 10th centuries, we see Anglo-Saxons minting their own saints, and they were minting them out of their own dead royalty. And this wasn't just the occasional thing. If you look through the Heptarchy, you'll find records of royal saints all over the place. Kent, East Anglia, Northumbria, and Mercia had all kinds of princesses, queens, and even the occasional king who were being posthumously revered as saints. And this began early. Probably a lot earlier than you think. One of the earliest examples of an Anglo-Saxon royal saint is Oswald of Northumbria. He died in 642, which was only about 50 years after the conversion. In fact, you might remember that the guy who killed Oswald, Penda, was a pagan king. So at this time, the island was a pitched battle over which religion would rule the land. And into this maelstrom, we see a royal figure, and not just any royal figure, 
a king getting elevated to sainthood. Now, Oswald's elevation, like any elevation to sainthood, can reflect all manner of things. It could be because he was particularly holy, or it could be the expression of mourning by the people he left behind. Or maybe it was an indication that he was popular, or at least popular with the right kind of people. And in this case, royal saints aren't all that different from normal saints. But the elevation of a ruler to sainthood could also be the expression of political power. Specifically, the political power or aspirations to power of the ruler's dynasty. And the more religiously minded among you might be thinking, well, what power? The main benefit of sainthood is the fast pass to heaven. And good point. For more standardized Christianity, or at least what is now turned into what we call Catholicism, the main perk of being a saint is that when you die, you get to skip the part where you sit around in a pine box and wait for judgment day for God knows how long. See what I did there? You're essentially the spiritual valedictorian getting to graduate first, or maybe you were like a rich guy in pretty much every other situation. But traditional and contemporary sainthood doesn't necessarily transfer power down to your descendants. I mean, at best, if your grandmother is a saint, then you have a lobbyist in heaven. You know a guy, in a holy manner of speaking. But for the most part, becoming a saint is a reward for the deceased. It's not a stat buff for the family that he or she left behind. Another important and traditional aspect of saints in Christian lore is that the Almighty is the one who chooses saints, not people. Saints are saints regardless of whether or not they're recognized by people on earth. That's part of why there's so much attention paid to miracles in the Catholic Church, because the thinking goes that miracles are a sign of God's favor, and thus sainthood. God has done the choosing, and we're just looking for the evidence. But that's not how the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy was doing it. They were just naming folks. Specifically, their own folks. And then if they needed to, they could backfill in some miracles. And the question that arises out of this is why were the Anglo-Saxons developing this peculiar version of Christianity on the island? Because while royal saints did exist elsewhere in northwestern Europe, they didn't exist in this sheer amount of quantity. The Anglo-Saxons were really cranking them out at astonishing speed. So why? Well, of course, it's hard to know for sure why they did do it, but there are a couple specific reasons for why royal saints and dynastic cults might have been endemic to early Anglo-Saxon life. The first possibility is simple ignorance. They might not have fully understood saints. And in order to make a saint correctly in the tradition of the official church, you do have to understand exactly what saints are and why. And the people of the early Anglo-Saxon era almost certainly didn't. I mean, don't forget that this is also the era where even members of the clergy couldn't necessarily tell you what the Ten Commandments were. So should you really expect a monarch to understand all the ins and outs of canonization? There's also the matter of conversion. Old habits die hard. And the Anglo-Saxons hadn't always been Christian. And at the time the aristocrats started making their own saints, it had only been 50 years since this new religion, with all these complex rules, started to take over. And due to the church's influence over the powerful Bretwaldas, many of these same royal houses were under tremendous pressure to convert. And while church leaders in Britain during this time did seem soupy on quite a few of the details, there were certain elements that they were very clear on. And one of them was the fact that you are not allowed to have any other gods. You only get the one, or at best, three in one. 
And that's a big issue because many of these rulers have been running around declaring that their right to rule came from the fact that they were descendants of Woden. But now they have Father Unferth saying that Woden isn't real. And if they claim that Woden is real, they're going to burn in hell. So if you're a 7th century British warlord, that's a problem. But there is a way out. Even if there's only one god, there's a whole pantheon of saints. Which, if you've recently converted from paganism, look a lot like smaller gods. So while you can't be the direct descendant of the Allfather, if you've got a few saints in your family, you can at least declare that multiple members of your family were the medieval equivalent of superheroes who were able to do some serious David Copperfield shit and were currently playing Neftafel with the Holy Spirit while everyone else was stuck waiting around for Judgment Day. By creating royal saints, dynasties were able to claw back at least a little bit of the prestige and mystique that they were losing by converting to Christianity. And thanks to how religiously chaotic and confused this era was, that was a pretty easy thing to do. Attaining sainthood during this period in Britain pretty much just had one criteria. Was someone powerful declaring that you're a saint? Yeah? Then congratulations, you're a saint. And because you've got a rich backer, you aren't just getting priority shipped to heaven. You're also getting a religious community that's founded in your honor. I'm guessing that something like that wouldn't matter all that much to the saints. I mean, after all, they're dead. I mean, maybe Oswald was sitting in heaven and saying, Hey, Peter, check it out. I got my own squad singing about me. Maybe that's what saints are concerned about, but I doubt it. Who it did matter to, though, were the people the saints left behind, because their dynasty could now argue that their family had been handpicked by God and essentially could wield magic. And who wouldn't want a community going and spreading that story and promoting it? So, pretty soon after royal dynasties started declaring their dead relatives to be saints, we also begin to see the large-scale establishment of what we call double monasteries. And double monasteries were a sharp departure from what you might imagine as a normal monastic community. And that probably shouldn't be all that surprising, since the royal saints they were often founded to venerate were also a pretty sharp departure from what you would imagine as normal Christian doctrine. So, double monasteries. These things were unique in that they housed both a nunnery and a monastery. So you had both nuns and monks living there. And interestingly, they were relatively matriarchal, with the nunnery acting as the dominant community. And because this structure happened so quickly after the conversion from paganism, I kind of wonder if this was an echo of an older spiritual institution. Or maybe it's a reflection of a contemporary cultural ideology that saw spiritual matters as belonging to the female sphere. And then that view slowly died out under the influence of the church. I don't know. But it is striking that in a time that was in many ways heavily patriarchal, you had these communities that were presided over by women, oftentimes royal women, who themselves were also attended by an entourage of other royal and highborn nuns. And these institutions were extremely important to the dynastic and political power systems of the land. And meanwhile, the monks of these communities were just serving as chaplains to the nuns. It's an interesting feature. But what catches my attention most about these communities is that not only were the royal saints they venerated created outside of the traditional church, but these communities themselves largely existed outside of the control of the bishoprics. 
double monasteries tended to be established by powerful dynasties and not by the church, meaning that the lands and their upkeep were drawn directly from the dynasty that they served, and by doing that, the dynasties themselves had a great deal of influence over life within the double monastery. And of course, under this influence, you did tend to have people from that same dynasty ruling over the monasteries. Furthermore, the double monasteries also functioned as mausoleums for the patron dynasty, which further cemented the relationship between the dynasty and the divine. But here's where they really dialed it up to 11. Sitting at the center of much of the double monastery's religious practice were the royal saints. The institutions didn't just house the bodies of their particular royal saint or saints, though they often did that too. They would also regularly conduct elaborate ceremonies that professed and thus maintained their saintly reputation. Saints, who were often members of the dynasty that established that monastery in the first place. You can see how if you were looking to add a feather in your dynastic cap, there'd be worse ways to go about it, right? I mean, in practice, these families were essentially creating their own mini-sect that gave their family members near-divine status. Not bad. And on a political level, that's a pretty practical decision. But it's also really intense. Because what we're talking about here is essentially a royal mausoleum that was created for the express purpose of promoting the story that a member of the royal dynasty was a saint. And that story is being maintained and spread by a community that was founded by that dynasty. And while it carries the appearance of Christianity, it was disconnected from the official ecclesiastical system on the island. And many of its rituals and observances would have been alien to virtually every other Christian community. So at best, this was kind of weird sect behavior. And at worst, it's outright heresy. But it also worked. Creating a dynastic cult took the concept of being a descendant of a god and repackaged it into something more palatable for the medieval mind. And it should come as no surprise to you that Northumbria and Mercia, two kingdoms that were constantly on the edge of civil war due to their multiple royal dynasties that were vying for control, produced a large number of these communities. Because why wouldn't they? Having religious communities that professed your dynasty was connected to the divine could potentially tip the balance of power in your favor. And so this is where the rapid proliferation of dynastic cults in the early conversion period came from. And they continued to be popular for a couple hundred years in Kent, East Anglia, Northumbria, and Mercia. And during that time, they were a big deal and housed some very important people in their own right. But by the 9th century the church had started to grow hostile to the double monasteries, and so they began to lose their luster. The Bishopric of Canterbury, in particular, made itself a thorn in the side of several prominent double monasteries, including the powerful Minster and Thanet. Also, secular authorities were starting to become a real threat, because if a rival dynasty got in power, or if your own dynasty needed a sudden influx of resources— well, the wealthy double monasteries can find themselves in significant danger of being disbanded and looted. So, over time, double monasteries and the dynastic cults that they housed became less common. But they still existed in the Anglo-Saxon regions. Except in one region. Wessex. Wessex had always been a little different. And here again, they were marching to the beat of their own drum, because they didn't share the same zeal for dynastic cults that their neighbors did. 
In fact, it was rare for Wessex to even have a royal nunnery. Furthermore, even when they did found royal religious houses within the borders of Wessex, that often came from someone who had a connection with another kingdom that already had dynastic cults. For example, Wimborne was established by Cuthbert, but she had previously been married to King Aldfrith of Northumbria, which is probably where she got the idea for Wimborne in the first place. And even when we see the construction of royal religious houses and double monasteries in Wessex, the dominant West Saxon culture still persisted. Because while those buildings did get made, they weren't accompanied by a dynastic cult. Nor were they used in the same way. For example, while these buildings were used as royal mausoleums in the rest of the Heptarchy, that wasn't the case for the West Saxon royal dynasty. They weren't getting buried in double monasteries and royal nunneries. Instead, the great majority of the early kings of Wessex were buried at the Cathedral of Old Minster in Winchester. And that's a marked departure from the rest of the Anglo-Saxons. And while you might say, it's a cathedral, so you still have royal families being buried in religious buildings, that's basically the same thing. Well, actually, it's not. I mean, if you look at it from the right angle, Old Minster might seem like a home for the West Saxon royal pantheon. But Old Minster was part of the traditional religious scheme, unlike double monasteries. Furthermore, it wasn't founded to promote a royal saint, nor was it focused around conducting services revering that saint. Instead, it was just a normally sanctioned and functioning church property. But what Old Minster did have in common with double monasteries is that it was vitally important for the ruling dynasty. Holding and being identified with Old Minster and Winchester in general was a serious mark of status for the ruling class. Take Alfred's grandfather, Egbert, as an example. When he took the throne of Wessex, his situation bordered on desperate. He had spent years in exile after losing to Offa. He was the son of a Kentish, not West Saxon, king. And his claim to Wessex was, to put it very nicely, dubious. So, given his precarious position, what did new King Egbert do? he immediately spent large amounts of money refurbishing Old Minster and Winchester in general. And this wasn't because he was super flush with cash and just looking for something to do. Egbert had some pretty significant problems, not the least of which was the fact that Mercia was sitting right on his border and might try and force him into exile again at a moment's notice. And yet he still decided to spend his efforts on Winchester and Old Minster. And that fact is striking. So is the fact that he subsequently kept his hold on the throne despite his Kentish family history. And this should tell you how important Winchester and Oldminster were to the West Saxon right to rule. So, if you're looking for some sort of West Saxon parallel to the world of dynastic cults, Winchester and the royal pantheon that was buried at Oldminster probably is the closest you're going to get. At least for a while. But things have been changing. And it all started with King Athelbald of Wessex, the older brother of Alfred. After generations of kings being buried at Old Minster, including his father, suddenly, Athelbald changed course. Instead of being interred at Old Minster, he eschewed the resting place for the kings of Wessex and ordered that he be buried at Sherborne Abbey alongside his brother, Athelbert. It was the first sign that the sons of Athelwolf might be breaking from the power of Old Minster. 
And historian Barbara York argues that this shift might have started because of Athelbald's attempted coup against his father. She suggests that Sherborne might have been jockeying for power against Old Minster, and that when Athelbald fought against his father, they saw their opportunity and backed him, while Old Minster sided with Athelwolf. And then, when Athelbald eventually came into power and became the King of Wessex, Sherborne took a place of prominence, while Oldminster fell dramatically out of favor. And this trend continued after his death. When the next king died, this one was Athelred, his resting place was likely selected by Alfred, and Alfred didn't have him buried along with the kings of Wessex. Instead, Athelred was interred at Wimborne. So now that's three sons of Athelwolf, two of whom were kings, who weren't buried at Oldminster. And instead, they were buried in monastic holdings, one of which was the royal religious house of Wimborne, which was inspired by Wessex's northern neighbors. And then Alfred took the throne. And Alfred was always a different kind of West Saxon king. Many of his actions flew in the face of southern tradition. And once he took power, he began to show an interest in royal nunneries, which was a dramatic break from West Saxon culture. And you might be thinking right now, wait a minute, earlier you said that he was pretty tight-fisted with the church, but now you're saying that he's taking an interest in royal nunneries. That doesn't make sense. Well, royal nunneries, much like double monasteries, existed on a different plane from traditional church properties. They really weren't church properties. They were royal properties with church-like branding. And like double monasteries, they were popular in Mercia. And Alfred's wife was Mercian, which might have been where he got the idea in the first place. And so, in a time where the church was so upset with Alfred that you had figures at Abington comparing him to Judas, seriously, they really compared him to Judas, and at a time when Pope John literally threatened Alfred with excommunication in 877 or 878, unless he started to treat the church better, you had Alfred out there generously granting land to the construction of a nunnery at Shaftesbury, which he built for his daughter. And the way that it was constructed and established sounds a great deal like the early royal nunneries of Mercia. It's almost like he was looking to adopt some of the methods at developing prestige that were utilized by his neighbors. Now, Alfred's focus on royal religious houses has raised the question of whether he was seeking to build a dynastic cult in the model of what was being done in Mercia. But here's the problem with that. Even though he built a royal nunnery, he didn't turn it into a family mausoleum, nor did he encourage the creation of a dynastic cult at Shaftesbury, Winchester, or elsewhere, nor did he focus his efforts on obtaining relics for a particular saint in ways that we see other dynasties looking to form a cult, like how the Carolingians were focused like a laser on getting relics connected to martyrs in Rome. Alfred didn't do any of that. At best, it seems like he was nodding his head towards dynastic cults, but he never really fully moved in that direction. Rather, it seems like he was bucking against the authority of the church and finding ways to extract wealth from them and diminish their power. But despite the threats from Pope John, Alfred didn't get excommunicated, though things between him and the church did remain strained, and that animosity seems to have gone both ways, because he never really bestowed that much lands or privileges upon the church. Even in his will, most of his property was focused on his family, with only nominal gifts going to the church. And for Old Minster, 
the symbol of power in the old West Saxon dynasty, that was bad news because Old Minster was tightly connected to the church. And that meant they were on the outs with Alfred. In fact, they've been on the outs with every single son of Athelwolf who took the throne. But Alfred took it to the next level. He decided he was going to build his own church. And he was going to build it right next to the old one. Whereas his grandfather, King Egbert, lavished attention and money upon Old Minster in an effort to connect his reign to the kings of the past, Alfred would do the opposite. He would create a new cathedral in Winchester that would be larger than Old Minster, but more importantly, right from the outset, it would be the shrine for the pantheon of the new West Saxon monarchy. Because it's easy to forget this, but the House of Wessex, due to its kind of dodgy Kentish past, was essentially a new dynasty. The links that King Egbert of Wessex claimed to the original West Saxon dynasty of Cherdich are creative. I mean, they might be true, but it requires some leaps of faith. But apparently, rather than continuing to make that argument, Alfred was planning on breaking from the past by building a cathedral that was bigger and more opulent than Old Minster. By doing this, he was creating a tangible symbol that the earlier pantheon of rulers were old and busted, and his dynasty was the new hotness. This view is even reflected in its name. Alfred's cathedral would be called Newminster. But there's a problem, and that problem was location. See, Old Minster actually was in a really good spot. So Alfred decided that he placed the new cathedral right next to the old one. Now, naturally, he didn't own the land right next to Old Minster. That was owned by Old Minster itself. But no worries, he was king. So those lands were forcibly carved out from Old Minster. And then, as a twist of the knife, it was demanded that Old Minster would bear a lot of the costs of building it. Furthermore, Old Minster was forced to lease lands to New Minster so that it could draw an income. This whole thing was astonishingly aggressive, and Bishop Denewulf of Winchester was f***ing pissed. But before Alfred could complete his project, he died, and Edward took the throne. After Alfred's death, his wife, Ailswitha, went on to found the nearby royal nunnery of St. Mary's Abbey, also known as Nunnaminster, and that was done in the Mercian style, again further introducing these dynastic concepts into Wessex. Now Edward, like his father, didn't show an interest in providing land or endowments to the church, but he did go about finishing his father's minster, much to the disappointment of Old Minster. And soon after the construction of New Minster, relics of St. Judoc were brought in, thus establishing a saintly cult there. The remains of Grimbald, who was one of Alfred's advisors, were also enshrined there, and soon people spoke of miracles that were said to take place near his tomb and he was venerated as a saint. And when Ailswitha died, her remains, as well as Alfred's remains, were interred within New Minster. So now we have a religious building that was created expressly for the purpose of housing a royal pantheon, and we have saintly relics being transferred there and the establishment of a cult. And finally, we have dynastic burials taking place within the religious house. It's starting to look a little bit like a dynastic cult, but while Newminster does have a lot in common with dynastic cults, it also has its own West Saxon flavor. For example, there was no royal family saint that was established there. Grimbald and St. Judoc were part of different dynasties. And were this a dynastic cult, 
you might expect to hear stories of St. Edward or St. Alfred, but that's not the case. Furthermore, this wasn't built on dynastic land. It was church land, regardless of how unhappy the church was about it. But it can't be denied that Newminster was definitely elevating the prestige of the Alfredian dynasty, while at the same time debasing the previous seat of West Saxon dynastic power, Oldminster. And evidence suggests that this was no accident. The building of Newminster seems to have been an explicit decision to crush the memory of the old order and establish the new. Even its location was a direct attack, placing the Newminster so close to the old that the rival choirs of the monks could hear each other and presumably lose their place in their hymns. And old Minster had to pay for the privilege. The House of Wessex played full contact. And when Edward died, he was laid to rest at a place of high honor, on the right of the high altar and near the remains of his parents. And he was joined by his and Alfred's son, Elfweird, the guy who mysteriously died in Oxford before he could succeed to the throne. So suddenly you have all these family members in Newminster. And now, with the death of Edward, we have a new king on the throne, Athelstan. So you have Wessex that was on the verge of finally producing its own dynastic cult at Newminster. And this new king, Athelstan, who was culturally Mercian. And there were all kinds of cults in Mercia. Even Oswald had a cult in Mercia. And he was a Northumbrian king who was killed by a Mercian king. And yet Mercia was venerating him. Because really, who wants to let politics get in the way of a good old-fashioned cult? And actually, Athelstan's ties with cults goes a lot deeper than just being in the neighborhood. This stuff was actually in his home. In fact, Athelflad and Athelred themselves established a dynastic cult. It was to Werber, the daughter of King Wolf Hera, son of Penda. They established it at Chester. And as for that Northumbrian King Oswald... That's actually linked to Athelflaed as well. Do you remember when she went to war in Lindsay? And in the process of that war, they also nicked the remains of Oswald? Well, when they came back, they placed his remains in a new lavish monastery at Gloucester. Then they introduced relics of Mercian royalty to that monastery. And when Athelred died, he was also buried there, later to be joined by Athelflaed. So you've got the construction of a royal monastery, saintly remains, connections to the royal dynasty, its use as a mausoleum. The Mercian Register doesn't come out and say, on this year, Athelflaed established a dynastic cult. But if it walks like a cult and chants like a cult, Athelflaed totally made a cult. And Athelstan seems to have been right there, probably paying attention. So... You might be thinking that this is where everything tips over, and we're going to start having monks singing about St. Edward. And Athelstan certainly did show an interest in religious houses. I mean, unlike his father and grandfather, Athelstan bestowed all manner of grants on religious houses, including Abingdon, Athelney, Exeter, Malmesbury, St. Mary's, Sherborne, and Shaftesbury. And while Abingdon compared Alfred to Judas, they absolutely cherished the memory of Athelstan. But interestingly, despite his intense fondness for the church and his family's comfortability with cult-like behavior, there was one institution that Athelstan had no interest in. Newminster. Under Athelstan, Newminster was thoroughly on the outs. And I wonder if it was that animosity that resulted in the lack of a true dynastic cult at the Minster. Because it certainly seems like it was moving in that direction. But suddenly, 
With Athelstan, it stops dead. In fact, he was so disinterested in that cathedral that even though his father, his grandfather, his grandmother, and his half-brother were all buried there, Athelstan decided that when he died, he'd be buried at Malmesbury. And while he lavished attention on other institutions, Newminster was relatively left out in the cold. Now, there are theories as to why Athelstan did this. The most obvious being that he wasn't that fond of Winchester in general. I mean, he was functionally Mercian, so Winchester was foreign. And besides, it wasn't like he was all that beloved in the city. Winchester backed Elfweird, which was kind of awkward. Furthermore, Athelstan nearly got blinded when he visited the city. An attempted murder can color your opinion of a place. And not without reason in this case, because Winchester would continue to be a source of opposition to Athelstan throughout his life. So Athelstan giving Newminster the cold shoulder might be the simple fact that it was located in his least favorite city. But there's another possibility. The Pantheon at Newminster wasn't explicitly for the House of Egbert, or the House of Athelwolf, or even the House of Alfred. Those three had family members who were buried all over the place. No, Newminster seems to have been focused on the royal pantheon of Edward and Elfled's family. Elfled being Edward's second wife. And given that Athelstan was the child of Edward and Egwin, that might explain why Athelstan spurned Newminster. And so did his successor and his successor, both of whom were also not members of that pantheon. In fact, none of Edward's children by his other wives would ever be buried at Newminster. Only the children by Elfled. And it wouldn't be until Edward's grandson by his third wife that we'll once again see a monarch buried at Newminster. When Athelstan strikes, he cuts deep. So, Newminster, probably for a whole host of reasons, was no place for Athelstan to start a dynastic cult. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't up for one. However, what do you do when you want to start a dynastic cult to bolster your claim to power, but your relationship with your family is touch and go at the best of times, and the new kingdom that you just inherited never really had a dynastic cult before. In fact, the kingdom might even be hostile to the idea. What do you do? You find a workaround. Instead of producing a dynastic cult where Athelstan elevated one of his ancestors to bolster his claim to power, Athelstan worked on cultivating a patron saint for Wessex. If you study the actions of Athelstan, you start to get the sense that he was obsessed with relics. He starts shipping in and collecting various bits and bobs of long-dead holy folk. And he also grabs their various pieces of jewelry and furniture and whatever, really. But in particular, he was favoring relics from royal saints. Athelstan seems to have had an obsession with these figures in their own right, especially royal saints who were martyred. For example, in Athelstan's court, the deeds and stories of St. Edmund the Martyr of East Anglia were discussed regularly. And of course his relics were also sought after. But even though Athelstan had an interest in royal saints and royal martyrs, it was with St. Cuthbert that he finally found his match. As soon as he set his sights on Cuthbert, we see evidence that Athelstan was granting Cuthbert-focused materials and supporting Cuthbertine communities in the heart of Wessex. Athelstan even went to visit the shrine of Cuthbert, and so would his successor. And Athelstan didn't just venerate St. Cuthbert, 
He seemed to be actively tying him to his own kingdom in a matter that was very similar to what you might do with a royal saint. This was a saintly dynastic connection that was being actively built by Athelstan. And the development of it becomes very apparent in the writing of the History of St. Cuthbert, which was written after the time of Athelstan, but took great pains to connect St. Cuthbert with the dynasty of Wessex. It's in this specific text where we get one of our favorite stories of a zombie Cuthbert appearing to Alfred on Athelney. And we also hear of Alfred on his deathbed telling Edward to be faithful to Cuthbert and of Edward on his deathbed telling Athelstan to be faithful to Cuthbert. And I'm almost positive that none of that happened. But that doesn't really matter, because the important part is that Cuthbert was being actively converted into a patron saint of Wessex. And you might be wondering, why Cuthbert? Well, we can't know for sure. Perhaps there was something in the saint's story that gripped Athelstan in particular. Or maybe he grew attached to the saint when he was very young, and so he associated the saint with himself. Or maybe it was because Cuthbert already had dead guy rock star status in Northumbria. And Northumbria was a territory that was not yet under Athelstan's dominion. Perhaps by aligning himself and his kingdom with Cuthbert, Athelstan was making his argument for his own imperium over the whole of Britannia. Some historians think he was doing exactly that. But either way, Athelstan set about fostering general interest in Cuthbert. And he wasn't doing this in the north or in Mercia. He was doing it in the place where it mattered most for his political goals. In Wessex. And that's a massive shift in West Saxon culture. Going all the way back to Churditch, this was the first time that we've seen a West Saxon dynasty connect themselves with a patron saint. And yet when Athelstan took power, he didn't just try and develop a new royal pantheon like his father seems to have been trying to. Nor did he put his efforts into forming a local dynastic cult like his aunt seems to have done. He did something bigger. He fostered a widespread West Saxon cult around an already powerful spiritual figure. And it was one that he could specifically use in service of his political goal of Imperium. They didn't call him the Thunderbolt for nothing. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can join us at British Podcast, and you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.